Today on the Don't Change Much podcast, we catch up with J.R. LaRose, a nine-year veteran of the CFL, 2011 Grey Cup champion, and a proud member of the One Arrow First Nation. J.R.'s path to success was very much hard won. He overcame a childhood defined by poverty, drugs, and abuse, an upbringing impacted by his mother's exposure to abuse during her time at a residential school. At 15, JR was introduced to football and it was a game changer for the young man. The sport fueled a passion that ultimately turned into a professional career. Now retired from the game, JR is an accomplished speaker and advocate who generously shares with others what a lifetime of adversity has taught him. I'm your host, Dan Murphy, and you're listening to the Don't Change Much podcast. JR, thanks for joining us, man. You still look like you could play in the CFL. You're keeping in good shape. <laughs> What's keeping you busy these days? Uh, thanks. First, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. I wish I could keep playing. I wish I could still do it. My body would be like paper mache. It would crumble. Um, so I have a new respect for watching athletes play at this level. I couldn't imagine doing that uh, now. Uh, what's keeping me busy now? Speaking. I travel all over, uh, internationally, overseas now, sharing my story, uh, doing stuff on healthy masculinity, gender-based violence prevention, uh, a lot of that stuff, and as well as coaching. I've been coaching football up in Saskatchewan, northern Saskatchewan. Kind of crazy how that all happened, but yeah, our season just ended. We lost the championship game, came short. That's basically what's been, to answer your question, to sum it all up, is I've been on the go, nonstop, and it's and I love it. I really do. We're going to expand on almost all of that. But I think most people here recognize your name from the CFL, obviously. But you got your start in football a little bit differently than a lot, a little bit later than a lot of people, especially someone that went on to play professionally and won a championship. So maybe tell us how you first got into the sport. I started playing when I was 15 years old. And so that is a later start for most people. And I was introduced through through football, through I was a family friend, but also a principal. And, and it really stemmed, and I tell people this all the time, like my reasoning for playing football was, it was controlled violence. And my upbringing was, the big reason why I played football was, you know, as a kid, I had suffered abuse, a lot of sexual abuse, and didn't know how to handle and channel all the things that were happening. Instead of fighting, it was football. And that's honestly my start. I didn't want to be suspended from school anymore for fighting. The principal gave me an opportunity to play football and I never looked back. It was like love at first sight. Did you realize at that time that was a specific channel for you to have a safe spot to be yourself and be aggressive and not get into trouble? Or is it not until later you realize that's what it did for you? I think it wasn't until later on in life when I really was able to really reflect back I'm so grateful for the volunteer coaches that, that, that come in, that volunteer time, even if it's teachers spending their extracurricular activity, whatever it is, um, it, if it wasn't for football, who knows where I would be? I honestly say I wouldn't be the person I am today. I know that for a fact, but, but I'm grateful. And But also going back to uh, what football is bigger than just the sport. Like for me, I was like, it was my father. I had a father figure from playing junior football. Um, so it, it's really helped mold me. Football has played a huge role in my life, but I think I didn't appreciate all the people that were involved in it until I, I became older and I was able to really reflect back. So safe to say that prior to the age of 15, it wasn't super easy being Gerald LaRose? No, it definitely wasn't. But I honestly, I didn't know any different. I think when we're when you're raised in whatever environment that you're raised in, oftentimes we don't know any different. We just, we survive. And for me, I was just in, in survival mode. Like I grew up my mom was part of the residential schools. You can imagine all the horrific things that, that had happened to her. I became a drug addict. I grew up not knowing my father. So there were so many 
inconsistencies in, in my life growing up where one, all I really wanted was to be loved by some man, somebody that I could call dad. And that was something that, and I'm sure we can get into this maybe a little bit later on, but that is something that had a huge impact and, and not even feeling worthy. Or I was getting into it now as, as we're doing it, as we're talking about this. But, you know, I started going through this counseling probably about eight months ago. And one thing that I'd honestly struggled was never feeling worthy enough of, of all the things that I had in my life. Like people would look from the outside looking in. Uh, it's almost like this mask we wear as we're talking about mental health. Uh, people would see that like, you're successful. He's made it. He's achieved his childhood dream. But a lot of the times I just didn't feel worthy of all the things that I had. And so when it came to a quiet time in my life is I would do things to self-destruct because I was so used to living in chaos. So I guess I went all over the place in, in answering your question there, but uh, it wasn't easy growing up for me, but I didn't know any different. I just, I was just surviving. Mm. I'll get back to the self-destruct part, but it's interesting. Here you are. I think you have a really solid understanding of your past and where it's led you, but you're still to this day seeking help to understand yourself better, even at this age. Yeah. And it's big. <laughs> it's really, I'm 39 years old now. But for the first time in my life, it's like I'm actually discovering who I am. And that stems through working through that childhood trauma. And I tell people, like, when you don't deal with that, that trauma manifests in our life, you know, one way or another, and it, it impacts people closest to us. So the self-destruction, we know before football, fights, etc. But even after football, when you first made it to CFL, first off, you didn't let your grades uh, keep up, so you didn't get to, to college. You made the Eskimos, and upon ma making the Eskimos, you made some poor life choices. Yeah, that and that's exactly that was the pinnacle, or not the pinnacle, but making it. And I was raised in Edmonton. That was my dream. Like I, I was, I lived right by Commonwealth Stadium as a kid in these low-income housing townhouses. You know, I remember sneaking in the stadium as a young boy uh, when they'd open up the gates for fans to to go. I would sneak onto the field after the players were done and run around thinking I was Henry Gizmo Williams. To now making my childhood dream playing professional football for the for the uh, for the Edmonton Eskimos that was everything like I'd idolized Gizmo Williams but then when I made it I did not know how to handle success I really I tell people this all the time playing for your hometown team it can be a blessing and it's a curse and if you don't have a good foundation support system around you it'll crush you and that's exactly what it did I started having people coming out from the woodwork family members people wanting to attach themselves to me because of the status that I carry as an athlete and I didn't know how to handle that I'll never make any excuses for it you start partying, staying out late, drinking, you know, involved in drugs. It became such a hot mess. And my play was impacted by that. So what made you realize that I can't continue on this path if I'm going to ultimately realize this dream that I've had my whole life? It was so I got released in 2005. They sent me back to my junior football team. I was on the practice roster in 05 and I got activated one game. Because one of the guys, Will Office, got hurt. He was a safety. And then after that game, I got released. But they also had the NFL cuts. So then they sent me back to my junior football team. But a lot of it stemmed from there were a lot of uh, people from the community reaching out to the organization, letting them know like how I was just out of control, you know, in in, in the whole party scene. And you know, when they let me go, that that was probably that was my breaking point. That was my uh, place where I realized my childhood dream was being taken away because of choices that I was making. It wasn't because of the lack of my athletic ability. It was the off-field issues, the partying. And so the thing that hurt the most 05 is Edmonton went on to win the Grey Cup championship. Uh, I should have been part of that championship team, but because of the stupid choices and the bad decisions that I was making, it, I missed out 
on that. But at the same time, I'm grateful Edmonton released me because my family, my whole family has struggled with addictions. My mom, my sister both passed away uh, because a result from their addictions, their body just starting to shut down. And uh, for me, if they wouldn't have released me, who knows You know how deeply I would have spiraled in, into my addiction. So I'm grateful that that happened, but uh, it definitely hurt for sure. You said, I didn't want my past to be an excuse. Um, yeah. That probably wasn't a real easy thing to, to come to, to realize, was it? No, and that's the quote I use. Don't allow your situation to become your excuse in life. And I didn't realize that until after. So probably when I was uh, later on in my career, when I started playing, uh, when I started playing in BC, and a big part of that was I started surrounding myself with older veterans on the team, people that were older than me that would mentor me, take me under their wing and uh, show me what it was uh, to be a pro. But oftentimes, so many people, we struggle with things and we almost have this victim mentality. And it's it's almost easier not to deal with the, the root issue, which is ourselves when we look at it, but it's easier to be that victim and blame other people. And that's what I did earlier on in my career is I blame other people for my failures and not really taking, reflecting back and looking at the person you know, in the mirror, which was me. Care to mention any of these the people that you leaned on for guidance in these years? Yeah, yeah. One of my one of my best friends, even to this day, was Will Loftus. I talked about him earlier. He, he's somebody when I met him in Edmonton. Uh, we obviously played the same position, uh, but took me under his wing when I was in Edmonton uh, after when I came back in 2006 and really showed me how to play the position. But the biggest thing for me was the work that he does in the community. I love being around youth. I, when I was going to go to university was to be a social worker, but I, I just wanted to have some sort of job that allowed me to continue to work with youth. And, and he really showed me what it meant to give back. And to this day, he's one of my, he is my best friend. Uh, with, with Through mentorship, I was actually just working out with him this morning. He is somebody that I leaned on heavily, even to this day. Uh, someone I could relate to, uh, someone that really didn't judge, just took me as their, their little brother. Obviously, you had the work ethic and the physical talents to uh, make yourself into a professional athlete. Um, and it's not easy. No one, not a lot of people can do that. But when you got to that point, when you realized that maybe it was slipping away, you showed some real mental fortitude. Would you say that your past, your mom's past, your youth really carved that mental toughness into you when you look back at it? Yeah, I think any time when, when I had struggles in trying to make a team... And I broke my leg twice as well. The first time when I shattered in Edmonton, they thought I wouldn't come back from that the way I'd shattered the bone. I had three surgeries on that leg. But for me, it really stems to, like, I have a hard time when people tell me, no, when I can't do something. I'll never forget, like, my gym teacher. This is someone that's supposed to help you, you know, push you towards your childhood dream. My gym teacher, I'll never forget, Millwood's Christian School I went to. Uh, my gym teacher said, Jerry, when I was talking about all these opportunities I had to go Div 1 and to get a scholarship to play in Canada, He's like, you're just a dime a dozen. You better find something else to do. And I'll never forget that. Uh, that real, to this day, it still pushes me. This is somebody that it just shows in the world that it's a sad society that we live in, but it's easier to bring other people down than try and build them up. And it was, it was I had my, aha, uh-huh, I'm going to come back when my, that school brought me back after my second year playing in Edmonton. I got to go back to the school and speak, and he was still there. And, and I called him out for it. It is what it is. But I think for me, it's... It really stems to just proving people wrong. I've been doing it my whole life. And uh, when someone tells me no, I find a way to, to make it happen. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit. 
to start improving your mental wellness today. So you suffered injury too as well in the 2011 season. You came back before the playoffs, I believe, right before EC goes on to win the Grey Cup. Uh, obviously, it's the ultimate team goal, but on a personal level, uh, what did it mean to you? And at that time, you're in the middle of a career, but were you reflecting on your career and your life when you raised the Grey Cup? That year was something else. So I'll even bring it back a year prior to that, so 2010. That's the second time I broke the same leg, dislocated my ankle, broke the leg again, tore tendons. So I thought my career was done at the end of 2010. And ironically enough, I broke it against Edmonton. So going into 2011, I'm running full speed again. I'm back playing, got my starting job back as a free safety. Second, yeah, last preseason game, I break my form. And so now I'm out five weeks with a broken form. I get the cast cut off. I get my starting job. We're getting ready to play Saskatchewan in the regular season again. And now uh, I get the news that my mom passed away. And so it's that that crushed me. I know I talked about my mom being a, a drug addict for many years, but, you know, my mom was someone I truly looked up to. And she brought me into this world and gave me an opportunity to succeed. Yeah, she struggled, but she did her best with how she with what she knew how. And, and then coming back from that, then I get a high ankle sprain. And so now I'm out another couple of weeks. Uh, and then I come back just before. No, as soon as we entered into the dome, that's when I came back from injury. When they opened up they had the new state in BC Place or whatever, after they did the renovations. So to win that after everything that I had been able to overcome, the type of adversity that I had faced was huge because it goes back to, I remember being a young boy in Edmonton running around my backyard, pretending to hoist a wooden trophy, thinking that was the championship. And to be able to live up my childhood dream with my family there, my kids were there, people from Edmonton came up and, and supporting my friends here in BC I were there was everything. But it was that moment of reflecting after, you know, sitting in the sitting in my locker, one of the last people to leave the dressing room where it was like, and that's where that uh, that quote that I use all the time is never don't allow your situation to become your excuse. I didn't allow my situation to become my excuse. I could have had every opportunity to want to quit after the injuries, the setbacks, but it's about being able to, to persevere. Who did you get to really share that time with aside from your teammates? Was there family, a friend that that meant something to as well that you were able to really enjoy? The victory with aside from team yeah you know what it was uh, it was my son's mom was she'd been with me we were together it was almost 19 years and she's she really had my back and probably one of the most uh, ride or dies that went through was with me through all that struggle from junior football into earlier on in my career as a pro not knowing how to handle success so for me uh, it was her my kids and then some of my best friends, you know, that were always there to to support me. But even people like Will Loftus, um, another G. Roy Simon was another one of my best friends, and guys like that that have always been there for me. For me, it was like this is for you. At the end of the day, it, it, there's a saying: it takes a, a village to raise a child, or a community to raise a child. If I, I've had so many influential people in my life throughout this journey that have made a huge impact, and it's not just about this is for for them as well. So when your playing days are done, when did you realize that, hey, I've got a story, I've got a background, I've got a message that can really help others? 
I think that it actually started in 2008 when I was playing in Edmonton. We do, we talk in schools about the importance of staying in school, getting an education. And it was at that point when I realized like, I have a story to share. I want to share this story. And then it really took off after we won the Grey Cup. I'd always spoke in the off season, uh, different communities, mostly indigenous communities would bring me in. Uh, but it was after we won the championship, it really put me up on a national level uh, where I had so many other communities reaching out. Um, and then so when I retired in after the 2014, so beginning 2015 season, when I retired, uh, I had opportunities to, to do this full time. And I loved it. I've been speaking in London probably this past year, three or four, three times now this past year uh, in London, England. That's always been a dream of mine. It's in a million years, I wouldn't have you know, thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing now uh, to the level that I'm doing it at. Were you always open to sharing your whole story or did it come in sections where you released a little bit more and more until where you are today? It came in sections. I didn't start talking about the abuse, the being like being sexually abused as a child until it was 20, 2010, 2011 is when I really opened up about it. And that stemmed from, I remember coming after I signed here in BC, I came to... They had, an, they had another speaker, one of the hockey players, I think is Sheldon Kennedy, I think his name is. He opened up and shared and talked about abuse that he went, uh, even from his coach. And that's honestly the first time when I realized that I wasn't alone. But you talk about the abuse. I had never really talked about that growing up. Nobody knew about it. It's something that I just held inside, but felt so alone. And after hearing that, I was like, man, look at the amount of courage that it took for this man to get up and, and share what he has gone through. But by but that was the first time I realized like there's hope for me. Like I don't have to carry this anymore. And, and, and so that's when I started slowly um, speaking about opening up about the abuse was back in uh, 2010 to now where it's, I share everything. I, I'm an open book. I talk about all the experiences because I know that feeling of if I felt alone, imagine how many other people that have suffered in silence uh, and, and don't see light at the end of the tunnel. So for me now, it's just, I just, I don't hold back. Why do you think there's such power in showing vulnerability, especially a big, strong football player? I think we're any type of athlete, high level athlete, you're almost taught not to show any type of emotion, right? In order to be a man, you need to not show emotion. You almost need to become desensitized to showing any type of vulnerability. And one thing that I've realized is there's more strength in being vulnerable. To me, when you talk about what is the definition of a man as someone that can lead with empathy, compassion, vulnerability, be able to communicate the being big and strong. That's easy. Most people can do that. But for what? A lot of people hide behind insecurities. And for years, I've lived behind these insecurities that I just need to be a big physical presence and that nobody would mess with. They think that I'm this person. But for so many years, I hurt. I hurt people close to me because I never dealt with these demons that from my childhood. So this is what healthy masculinity looks like as opposed to toxic. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. The word toxic masculinity comes up all the time. And uh, I think when we use that word toxic, it's we can't blame people. We assume people should know right from wrong. We really do. I didn't know what it was to be a man because I grew up without a father. The people that I looked to were other athletes. It was a lot of the music that I listened to. And I think we, even this day and age now, this cancel culture, I think people should be held accountable for further actions. Uh, but the big thing, let's, get, let's hold spaces where, where men can actually open up and speak about the thing, how we've been impacted. Your backstory has so many layers from um, sexual abuse, racism, drug abuse, the family, with yourself. And now you share your past, these messages. I'm not asking you to name names, but it, it, can you recall a, a community or an individual where 
a someone really took it to heart and told you that it had made a difference for them? Mm. You know what? I'll never forget. There, there were two times. There were two times when it really made a big impact on me. The most recent time I was speaking up in, oh, why can't I think of the name now? It's just off the coast up in it's Prince Rupert. I was speaking up and it was open to a community and a young girl came up to me and I was speaking about the sexual abuse and, and overcoming that. And then a question came and it was, she asked me if I'd ever, so someone in the audience asked if I'd ever pressed charges on the person that, you know, was sexually abused me as a kid. And I said, no, but I, no one has ever asked me that. I was stumped by it, to be honest. And then after uh, she came up and people were coming to sign autographs, take pictures, I'll never forget. She said, Jerry, I want you to know that I'm going to move forward and, and press charges on the person that, that, that abused me. But then she said, she's like, you're strong enough to do the same thing. And I'll never forget that. I thought, this is, I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be. You know, it's, if I can give somebody hope, a teenager hope, like I'm a grown man and I've held on to this for years. I would talk about it, but I'd also control the narrative. Like I would let people in to a part where then I would then just, I could shut it down. I'll never forget. She was, I want to say maybe 15, 16 years old. And the amount of courage that it took for this person to open up about that and to just say, you're strong enough to do that. That was, we talk about a TSN turning point in my life and why I started seeking uh, going to counseling was because I had realized that there were so many things that I was holding on to that I controlled this narrative, but I wouldn't fully open up. And if somebody, if by me sharing my story gave someone else hope, well, how can I now keep other people accountable? And, and I never thought about it, but that was honestly probably the biggest thing was I'll never forget speaking up there, uh, Prince Rupert, that teenager, uh, giving her that it gave her courage and strength to do something uh, was something for, was bigger for me. Her opening up was bigger, had a bigger impact on me than I think me speaking to her, not to minimize my impact on her, but it, for me, that's why I took it. Yeah. Who would have thought that opening up, heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, who would have thought that opening up and sharing your story to help others would in turn help yourself? It's one of those, and I'll be honest, a lot of the times I go into these communities and you just don't know the impact that you have, right? I'm in and out. I go speak, from speaking to the keynote, whatever it is, I speak for my 45 minutes for an hour and then it's on, I'm on to the next. You don't really have much of the follow-up or you, know, you don't really get to see that impact on other people. And I'm grateful when people do reach out and I've gotten so many other messages from other conferences and stuff that I've spoken at, but you just realize how many people are suffering in silence. You've supported so many campaigns, mental health, violence against women, opioid crisis. I guess being an advocate is the most important job that, that, uh, that you've had to date. It is for sure. It's what I'm supposed to do. I think that's what my calling is for sure in, in life is to give back and speak on things. But these are all things that hit close, close to home. Like we talk about the addictions, the substance abuse, my mom sister, they both passed away because of from substance abuse issues, um, sexual abuse or abuse. I've seen my mom, violence against women. I've seen my mom thrown down a flight of stairs when I was 10 years old. I remember witnessing that all these different things that, that I speak on are some that, that have hit home it is, and it's close, it is, you know, it's close to me, to my heart, but subjects and things that are topics that are very, very important to me. Let's move away from the real heavy stuff and maybe talk about your life as a football coach now uh, coming full circle uh, in Saskatchewan. Maybe just share a little bit about what that experience has been like. So it's wild how that came about. I spoke at a youth conference 
It's called Cumberland House for Cree Nation. It's deep up. It's northern Saskatchewan. Like you fly to Saskatoon, it's like a five-hour drive from there to this place. And I spoke at a conference, and talking with the conference organizer after, she said, oh, we're starting a football program. I was like, oh, great. She's like, would you be willing to come back and, and run a football camp for us? And I was like, yeah, for sure. I'll bring some other pro athletes up. You know, it'll be a great experience. So we're bringing these athletes up to come and coach these kids. Uh, partway through, she's like, our coaches here don't have any football experience. Can we bring you up to be the coach? And I'm like, oh, man, like I'm super busy as it is. Like I am gone almost every week. I'm somewhere. And so I said, you know what? I'll try and commit. Uh, and the weeks that I can't be there, I'll fly in another coach. So we started off, we had 22 kids on our team. Four kids had played football before. First year of the program. On the, our first game, we got blown out 66 to six. <laughs> it was, we had eight turnovers for our running back, fumbling the ball. So, like these are kids that have never played the game before, majority of them. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, for me, it has brought a new love uh, of football back to me. Because I've coached here in Vancouver, we coach an elite travel team. I've coached at the high school level. So most of these kids have played football before. They're, they're top of the top. And for this, like just for a kid learning how to catch a ball or, or getting a sack, getting a touchdown, that, that type of excitement and joy, it's just the pureness of it. It's brought a new love for it. And it's given me so much peace as well. We just lost the championship game just this past weekend. We started out, we, we got blown out to now. We I think we finished season five and two. We lost our first two games and then we went on a win streak and we almost the team that beat us 66 to six, we almost beat them. We had the lead throughout the game and then it just fell apart and officiating and whatever. I ain't gonna get into that. It was the worst I've ever seen. But the fact that we got to that point, I honestly I'll be honest, I didn't think I was happy with winning two games throughout the season and that's it. To now they're starting a junior football program in that community and they're looking to bring me back next year. I love it. I love what I'm doing. Uh, these kids mean more to me than I think they truly know the impact that they've had in my life in these short we've only been eight weeks that i've been up there so i'm actually taking off tonight we're doing our football banquet up there tomorrow that sounds fantastic representation matters right they see you up there and you made it and now not just coaching you're teaching yeah one thing uh well so we know that you're still working on your mental health uh, through therapy you're a busy guy and we have a lot of people to listen to this podcast that say they don't have time to try to stay physically <laughs> fit so what do you do how do you balance that in order to try stay in as good a shape as possible given how busy your daily life is you know that, that's a great question that's something that i'd actually struggle with i think is being a football player that's all you know. like that's the only way that i knew how to train was like this heavy powerful type lifting exercises and when you retire you don't need to be that strong anymore right? i'm not running around trying to hit other 250 pound men 300 pound men uh, so for me it's just doing little things just being active if it's doing cardio if it's doing some sort of circuit that's when i'm at my best is is when i'm releasing those endorphins from what i get from the gym when i feel good i look good i perform good and so i'm speaking well I like that Deion sanders you know the quote that he says when you look good or you feel good you play good all that but it does for me being physically active and fit is a huge part of my life and in feeling good, period. So there's a correlation for when you're feeling physically good, you're feeling mentally good. Without a doubt, I know when I'm starting to struggle is when I'm not being active, when I'm just sitting and becoming very restless, but then the mind starts to go, right? <laughs> the mind starts to play games with you. And that's one thing that, that I've realized is the importance of some sort of physical activity. I could just be even going for a hike. Like I enjoy hiking now. I used to hate hiking, <laughs> but I enjoy that. I do. I really do. 
Yeah. What does a father mean to you, being a father? Being a father, that's my why. Being a dad, my my two boys, they're, they're older now. My, my oldest is 20 and my youngest is 17. He'll graduate this year. But honestly, I, I wanted to be a dad. I couldn't, I was excited to be a dad. I couldn't wait. I had my kids young uh, because I never, I grew up not having a dad. So for me, being able to show up to my kids' events, like my youngest played, my oldest played just football. My youngest played football, hockey, baseball. You know, he acts, all that. But being able to just show up and be present. One of the things I'll never forget growing up without a dad, like I thought I needed to be a good enough athlete to be accepted by my dad. And more than anything, I wanted, I wanted somebody to watch my games. And so now it's, I rarely miss one of my kids' sports events because I know what it feels like. And it's just a joy just to see them thrive. Like, I love that. And and it's also there at a point now where, you know, my ass is, is figuring out life, same with my youngest. But now it's I can really be more hands-on in, in what it means to, to be a man, move forward in life, and just support them. So it's I really love being, uh, being, being dead, for sure. Sounds like, actually, you're probably far more mentally mature than you're letting on if you knew when you had kids early how much you wanted to be around and how much you wanted your childhood uh, to affect how you're going to be a father in a, in a different way yeah that that was my thing for me it was like when i grew up uh, i made a vow and i was like i didn't want to be like my dad who obviously i didn't know and, and I, i'm not perfect i've stumbled time and time again oh, there's no blueprint on how to be a father it's something that we just figure out and but continuously try and for me it was being able to be present that's one of the biggest things that i've learned is being present i think when we look at what does being present mean it's not being on my phone when i'm trying to have a conversation with my kids it's actually listening that's a big thing too is being able to listen most people want to talk at their kids let them open up and share some of their experiences and i think for us even as adults of our generation i think some of the things that we might have gone through as a child or struggled with our kids won't go through the same things but their struggles I think sometimes we minimize, and that's something that I've had to learn is I'd sometimes minimize some of my kids' issues, being like, oh, you really don't have it that bad. But now it's actually walking through you know, that little bit first that they're facing together with them. And, and for me, it's been the biggest learning point is just shut up and listen. That's it. How can I support you? Do you think that because they see uh, what you do with your life now in terms of opening up and trying to help others, are they more open? Because a lot of time teenagers, well, they don't want to talk. But do they see dad being able to speak uh, emotionally about different things? Uh, has that helped them, do you think? I think, yeah, I think so. In the sense of even coaching, both of them wanting to give back. I think the things that we model, I think our kids are sponges. Uh, they're trying to soak in a lot of the experience that they have with their parents. And um, my oldest now is working more, but with my youngest, he's at an age where he's coached. We got to coach together, but uh, the conversation that he had with some of his friends, he's like, dad reached out to someone, just had a conversation. And I was like, to think how far we've come. Like I remember with one of some of my friends, we'd never talk about if they're going through a breakup or whatever. It was like, come on, man, get over it. Like, you know, don't talk about that. Don't be a punk. And, and to see these conversations that I think this generation is starting to have, or we're going, we're tracking in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Well, Jared, this, it's been time has flown by here. It's been just a great conversation, but we always ask our guests. The title of the podcast is Don't Change Much. And so we have to ask you, what does that phrase mean to you? It's the phrase don't change much. I look at my life and I really am the same. I'm the same person in a sense that this is JR, but I'm still discovering who I am, but I've just made a few small changes. And those, honestly, those few small changes that I've made have been life-changing for me. Um, And I tell people, don't be afraid to seek help. 
that's probably the biggest thing for me is when I was kid, when I became able to ask and seek help, my life changed drastically. And I just said, like, this is only eight months that I've been doing my counseling. I'm a different person than I was, uh, you know, eight months ago, a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, but I just came to taking one hour out of my, out of the week to meet with a counselor. And I do it maybe twice a month when I can. And it's huge. That didn't change much. Just a little bit of action. I get the feeling that if we did this again in two more years, we could have another half hour conversation just about how you continue to grow. <laughs> it's definitely easy for sure. For sure. Thanks so much for your time and just your raw honesty about your past and your present. I think that your message, uh, because your history has so many layers, can help a lot of people uh, in a lot of different ways. So we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Click the follow button if you enjoyed the conversation and join us every month for a new episode of the Don't Change Much podcast.